0: Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast is a technical skill. It's decision science. And shortly, we will welcome today's guest, Phil Bardard, onto the podcast to discuss the role that decision science plays in today's consumer buying behaviour. But before I do, let me tell you why I believe it's so important that we continue to discuss decision science. One thing I love about the marketing profession is that it's constantly evolving And the majority of the evolution, aside from the digital and technological advancements we've seen, have been the shifts in our understanding about how consumers make decisions, how our brains make those decisions into the brands that we choose. Due to the latest thinking in behavioural science, System 1 and System 2, and the greater understanding of the role that attitudes, values and psychological drivers play in decision making. But what happens when we combine all of this thinking and how do we practically apply it into our marketing practice as marketers of tomorrow? And that's what we'll discuss today with the author of the book, Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy. Today's guest is Phil Barden. He has over 25 years client-side brand management experience at Unilever, Diageo and T-Mobile. Whilst responsible for T-Mobile's brand positioning and development around Europe, he became a client of Decode Marketing Consultancy and first encountered Decision Science. Decode's work led to the Liverpool Street flash mob dance, whose advertisement increased T-Mobile sales by 49% and further work halved customer churn. This epiphanal moment led Phil to set up Decode in the UK 12 years ago. He is the author of Decoded, the science behind why we buy, a fellow of the marketing society, and Phil worked with many clients and agencies in the application of decision science to day-to-day brand and shopper marketing activities. Phil, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to
1: be here. So as
0: always, we start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what is
1: decision science to you? Decision science is a bit of a catch-all expression, but it's an important one because... Science takes many forms, of course, and decision science has to do with behavior and human decision making. But it's a catch-all expression because it includes many different fields of study. So, neuromarketing, cognitive, social, evolutionary psychology, as well as behavioral economics. So, each one of those can give us a really good insight into behavior But I think the benefit of calling it decision science is that you can take a more holistic look and take the learnings from each of those different fields of study.
0: And what are those key learnings from those different types of study?
1: There are many. One of the first that surprised me, having spent 25 years in client-side marketing, was a realisation that behaviour is a product of the person and the context or situation in which that person finds themselves. and um, Because previously, I think marketing had only ever focused on the person. And we'd done a lot of detailed segmentation in various shapes and forms, but only ever focusing on what drove that person and completely ignorant of the fact that that same person placed in a different context. So that could be a, a time or a place or with certain people. Once you change the context, then that same person's behaviour can change quite fundamentally. So that was one of the first differences that I learned from behavioural science, that we need to take context into account.
0: So let's just take the person
1: for an example.
0: One thing when I was starting to learn more about behavioural science and the way in which we make decisions, particularly the emotional context and biases of our decision making, was the... The fact that for decades, as marketers, we've been taught the decision-making hierarchy, you know, almost like this functional list of criteria that that person goes through into making a decision as to which brand or product they're going to purchase. And actually, 95% of the decision-making is emotional. And then top of that, the context you've just mentioned as well. Take us through what we now understand drives the way in which we make decisions.
1: Well, firstly, I take exception to the claim that 95% of our decision making is emotional. This is a stat that pops up at various conferences and in various forums and publications. And I asked a professor of neuroscience what the source was for this particular piece of data because it sounds quite precise and she said well there isn't one because it's not <laughs> true the closest and i i did my own google search on this and google scholar search as well the closest you can get to it is from a guy called professor gerald zortman who wrote a book how customers decide and zortman works at harvard When challenged about this, he actually regrets having made the following statement, which was that 95% of thinking takes place in our unconscious minds. So that is a very different statement. 95% of thinking takes place in our unconscious minds. He's very different to saying 95% of decisions are driven by emotion. And when Zoltman was challenged on this, he actually has said that he regrets putting a number on it because it's impossible to measure. That's the first thing. The second thing is that all the academics and scientists that I've spoken to or read about, the furthest they will go is to say that the vast majority of our thinking is non-conscious. This fits with what we understand about the so-called System 1 and System 2 set of mental processes, that System 1, which are the automatic, pre-conscious or non-conscious processes, really control the vast majority of our actions and our decision-making. And the System 2 processes, the reflective, controlled mental processes, Whilst System 2 is active in every decision we make, it's, as Professor Daniel Kahneman calls it, a lazy controller. So it tends to nod things through if they seem reasonable enough. And so it probably actually only controls a minority of of our decision-making. So that whole 95 is a little bit fraught with difficulty.
0: Okay, so you heard it here on the whole marketer podcast. That fact is not a fact. It is about the vast majority make decisions in the unconscious mind, not quantified, not quantified. Correct. So what else influences how we make decisions?
1: Well, when it comes to brands products and and services, the things that influence the decisions really centre around a job to be done that the person wishes to accomplish. And that job to be done, and this is a phrase that was made popular by the late Professor Clayton Christensen, also at Harvard, the job to be done is a mixture of Functional jobs. So I buy a category because I want a particular functional job to be achieved. So that might be something like I need transportation or I need fast broadband or I'm thirsty and in need of refreshment or I've got dirty laundry and it needs cleaning. So those are functional jobs to be done. And it's very important. In fact, it's absolutely key critical that a brand delivers at that level. Because if you don't, if you don't meet the functional job to be done, then you won't be in business very long, frankly. They're they're like table stakes, if you like. And the way that the functional jobs to be done are delivered depends on different features and characteristics of the product or the service. So it could be a chemical formulation, or it could be the ingredient in a food product, or it could be service characteristics in a service brand. So you've got these functional jobs to be done and the way that they are delivered. And of course, the occasions on which the job is relevant to an individual, which brings us back to context as well, Mm. because that can change the nature of the job to be done. That's all well and good. But there is also another set of jobs to be done. And these are more implicit. So we don't have conscious and introspective access to them, but nevertheless, they do exist as universal human motivators. And these are more a mixture of social, emotional, and psychological jobs to be done. So it's what the product or the service says about me, how it makes me feel. It's about our sense of place in the world and self-identity. And successful brands deliver against these jobs to be done. And when they do, when we learn they do, and we can learn they do through our own experience, but also received experience and received wisdom and every bit of learning and exposure we have to the brand and their, their communications, who uses the brand, on for what purpose, on what occasion. We learn all of these and they form memory structures. They form sets of neural networks and associations that... Tell our brains whether brand X has high or low value. And the high or low value is determined by the degree of instrumentality that brand X has in helping us achieve a certain job to be done. So at a functional level, you can find that brands perform very similarly to each other. But when you overlay either the feature characteristic and occasion, and or you overlay the social, emotional and psychological jobs to be done, then our brand choice can change dramatically. So an example, if I wanted to buy ice cream, it's for a particular job. So buying ice cream as a treat for your kids in a park on a sunny day will evoke different brands to buying ice cream as a luxury dessert to serve for guests. And that in turn will yield a different set of brands to a job to be done, which is about I just want pure self-indulgence. I'm going to slob out on the sofa and watch a movie. And so you're buying ice cream. It's still ice cream in each of those contexts. But because the job to be done has changed, so the mental availability of different brands comes into play because we've learned that those brands have greater or less instrumentality in helping us achieve that particular job to be done. Achieving that job to be done or goal, goal is a phrase that that is used often in science and academia, and there's a vast degree of consensus across different fields of science and academia that human behaviour is goal-directed. We are motivated to achieve goals, a.k.a. jobs to be done. That is the essence of motivation. Motivation itself comes from the Latin movere, which means to move. So it's about moving and acting. And we act in order to achieve a goal or a job to be done. So in a nutshell, that's the essence of decision science.
0: You explained that so clearly. So thank you for sharing that, Phil. And I've written down in three buckets here, the human unconscious mind, the functional jobs to be done, social, emotional, and psychological, and the context that they're within that allows them to filter through as to which brand they have mental availability for and memory structures and past lived experiences. That is really clear. Thank you so much. Now, we're also going to talk today about your book, Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy. And I absolutely love this book. I was just telling Phil Before we started the podcast, what I loved about this book is that you combined the latest thinking on neuroscience, thinking on behavioral economics, and then the cognitive and social psychology, and then you coupled it, which is the first time I've seen it done like this, into practical applications that we as marketing practitioners can use. And not just in a branded sphere, you know, looks at all the tactical applications as well, from product testing to pricing strategies and so on. In the opening of your wonderful book, Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy, You state that what drove you to write this book is that your own belief system was significantly shaken in your last client-side role due to the latest learnings in neuroscience, behavioral economics, cognitive and social psychology, which is ever-changing, as per my statement around the 95%. I've been corrected today. Can you tell the listeners more about how this drove you to appraise your approach and the benefits that this brought to you as a marketing practitioner?
1: Yes, It was quite an uncomfortable process because I'd spent 25 years in client-side marketing, mostly with Unilever. So I'd grown up with a bit of an arrogant sense of my own self-worth as a marketeer that I knew it all by then. Mm -hmm. I knew how communications worked or didn't. I knew why people bought certain brands. And... I came across a sticky situation in my last client role. I was VP for T-Mobile in Europe, and I had to reposition and relaunch the brand throughout 12 European countries. And I had commissioned a very expensive and very time-consuming piece of research to run in all of the countries to look at brand position. And the results I was getting back just did not make intuitive sense. And I was really nervous because I had invested my personal equity as a marketeer in championing this piece of research. And the results just looked spurious. And I was talking with a colleague in the office and he said, oh, you you should chat to these guys from Decode. They're very interesting. Just get them in and talk to them. So I invited them in and the two founders of Decode. One is a neuroscientist and the other is a cognitive psychologist. And I explained the issue I was facing and I showed them some of the data. I showed them some of the materials that had been used in the testing. And there and then, in the space of an hour, they started to unpick the research. They told me why some of it was valid and some of it was not from a methodological point of view, they told me why and how people would react to some of the materials. And I was just stunned because the way these two guys talked firstly made perfect and intuitive sense. But secondly, it was all new to me. I had never heard people talking about advertising material or branded material in this particular way. And when I said to them, how come you guys know all this stuff? They kind of looked at me a bit blankly and said, but how come you don't know this stuff? Because, you know, you're in the commercial world and you're in a senior marketing role. All we're doing is we're using our lens, which is based on 150 years of study and peer-reviewed study in, in different fields of science and academia about how the visual processing system works in the brain, for example. And we're just giving you our lens to explain things. And it just it just made more and more sense. And the more I worked with them, the more I quizzed them, the more they could unpick for me things that were like conundrums hitherto that I just couldn't understand. And no one that I talked to had been able to understand. You know, why do you get certain results in one country and different results in a different country? How does the cultural differences apply to the results? Or why would an ad pass pre-testing and then fail in the market? Or vice versa? And the more I worked with them, the more all of this sort of lifted a veil on my career. Some of it was very uncomfortable because it fundamentally challenged or mental models that I had, things that I'd worked with in the past. And it also fundamentally challenged some approaches that marketers and their creative agencies make and follow. So to give you an example, the number of times I had been in a creative presentation And the planner or the creative had said, when people see this, they will think blah, blah, blah. And when they explained it, it seemed, yeah, I I get that. I see why you're saying people will think. But when I showed the same material to these guys from Decode and said, people will think blah, 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 they immediately stopped and said, why are you saying that? why do you think people will think blah, blah, blah? And I said, well, because the agency says, and the agency (laughs) are expert communication. And they said, no, you're assuming people will think. People will only deal with what's tangible and perceptible to them. And what you are saying, they will think, actually, in this case, I can't remember what it was, but it is completely different. What you're showing them is a prototype for X and you're expecting them to think, why? Why on earth would they do that? They don't care about your advertising. They haven't read your creative strategy, and why would they? They can only deal with and process the perceptible signals that come to them and enter their brain, and the brain will deal with what they perceive in a very standardized way. We know how the brain processes communications. Why do you think it's going to be any different to... The way the brain has evolved over millennia <laughs> and that's the kind of challenge that is difficult to argue with you know well the agency think this well they might but you know what science tells us something different so who are you going to believe so that was a real eye all of these experiences were real eye openers for me and the more i Talked to them and worked with them. And by the way, I ditched that huge, expensive bit of research at great risk to myself and commissioned Decode to run their version of category and brand equity discovery to find out what made brands relevant and distinctive. And the result of that research did manifest itself in the relaunch of the brand throughout Europe. And most famously, and the case I cite in Decoded, is the relaunch in the UK back in 2009 with the Flash Mob dance ad at London's Liverpool Street Station, which has got something like 41 million YouTube views and grew sales by nearly 50%. It was just astonishing in its commercial impact. And the more I talked to them and and saw for myself, witnessed for myself the power of decision science in action applied across brand touch points, I had this dawning realisation that what these guys were expert in was the foundation of marketing because marketing is only ever about behavior change. We want people to buy our brand, switch to our brand, buy more of our brand, talk about our brand, share stuff about our brand. It's all human behavior. And it just dawned on me, these guys know it. They know it and they continue to study it. And I got very excited by that and and ended up approaching them and, and asking them if they would be interested in having a UK office And as a result, I quit my client-side career and set Decode up in the UK. And that's what I've been doing ever since, working with these guys and, and the full team in Decode. So we're a real mixture of academics and scientists, but also practitioners like myself. So I'm delighted you said you found the book practical, because I'm never going to have a PhD in neuroscience. But if I and my colleagues can understand, in layman's terms what the key principles are, and then we can help marketers roll their sleeves up and apply the principles to grow their brands, then for me, that's a success. And so that was the genesis of the book as well, to bring this stuff to life for marketers like me, and hopefully make it understandable. And as I said, very practical.
0: So it feels to me that there's that understanding that human behavior first. And then defining the methodology to test against that and not our previous preconceived ideas and our own biases to a degree around how yeah. an idea is going to be perceived and accepted by our consumers and customers, but actually using that latest understanding to define methodology around that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I came to realise is that when you work client-side or agency-side on brands and creating materials and communications, you are so close to it day in, day out. It's what you live and breathe. It's your career. It's your livelihood. It's your passion. You're so close to it that you often miss the wood for the trees. And it just, it does take that objective, third party to come in and say, okay, so what's the brief? What were you intending to communicate? Now let's look at the material against that brief and work through the way that the brain would process it and see whether or not it's going to meet the brief. And often people miss really obvious stuff and not because they're stupid, just because they are so close to the material and live and breathe it every day. They miss that objective, let's stand back and see how... Joe Public is going to process this ad.
0: Yeah, and that need to stay objective is a key skill and behavior that marketers really do need to possess. And you know, I can almost tell when I'm reviewing strategic plans how long that marketer has worked on that brand based on how subjective they are being in their situation analysis. Mm. Now, I can almost if I was to you know put a guess on the duration that time they've been within that business of working on that brand, you know, those are subjective given the realities around the strengths and the weaknesses of the brand versus someone who's worked there a lot longer and is almost becoming an advocate and being desensitized to actually the consumers and customers' thoughts and feelings or against the competitors of that brand or business. So yeah, I can see how as time goes on, that happens. And I think what I loved about what you just said is that you almost work backwards. So you go, what is that job to be done? What is it that you want to communicate and then work backwards Mm. opposed to here's the creative and then testing perceptually whether that's going to deliver against that. You actually go with the goal in mind.
1: Absolutely. Every bit of material is written to a brief and it has to meet the brief. And uh, assuming the brief is correct, assuming the objective is strategically right and valid, then yes, that, that's your touchstone, if you like, against which you have to judge any work. You used the word subjective, and that also can be a real issue in businesses because you get into debate that is based on opinion, mm. and both within the client and hierarchies within the client. And of course, with the creative agency, you know, I think this, well, I think that, well, I like the following. When we approach work, we never talk about liking It's not about liking. It's do I like the work? It's about will the work achieve its objective? Will it get processed and decoded in the way that you intended so that the message you want to convey in the tone of voice and and to reflect the brand values will be achieved? It's not about whether I like the work. And you can also, through the lens of science, you can take the debate away from subjectivity and make it far more dispassionate and just make it objective. It's okay. You know, we we can look at this in a very objective way. This is what will get processed. This won't. This is what this means prototypically, not maybe what you thought it did. But that's fine. You know, this is all about optimizing and giving the creative the best chance of success to meet the brief.
0: And it's clear that one of the key benefits is the ability to remain objective. And in your book, you share how marketers can use this understanding in day-to-day marketing practice, you know, practical application, as you said, you know, from a practitioner for practitioners and how you can utilize this knowledge for, you know, more effective brand management. You've peppered your book with wonderful case studies to illustrate how you can use this thinking all the way from setting your long-term strategy and setting pricing to brand identity, comms development MPD and much, much more. Can you share some of the key applications and benefits with our audience?
1: There's a couple that spring to mind. The first is thinking about goals, is thinking about what will motivate your target audience. And in chapter six in the book, there is a goal model that we use in our day-to-day work that describes the fields of social, emotional, and psychological goals that exist universally. And so to understand what goals the category is bought to deliver and where brands might be positioned relative to others. You can use that model instinctively and intuitively. A lot of the work we do is to quantify that model and brand space within it or where a category sits. But that's, of course, further down the track. If someone were just reading the book and applying the model, they can do so intuitively. So thinking about goals as the source of demand and motivation, I think, is the first tip. If I'd known that at the start of my career, I think it would have been... Super, super useful <laughs> because that you know that was behind the relaunch of T-Mobile. It's behind every every bit of work we do as a business because it's just so so fundamental. The other bit that intrigues me is perception and how perception for human beings is reality and how we can unwittingly convey something completely different to what we intended. And to give you an example, a very basic example, in a study, people were given a dessert two desserts to try, actually. One was a sort of uh, beige yellowy colour. And when they tasted it and asked what it was, they reported it was vanilla pudding. And indeed it was. And then they were given an identical bowl and with a brown-coloured dessert, same same appearance, just just brown. And when they were asked what it was, they reported chocolate. It wasn't. It was the same vanilla pudding, but coloured brown with food colouring. But because their brain linked brown dessert with chocolate because that's what we've learned and that's what the brain expected. That's exactly what the brain experienced. And that's just a trivial example. There are thousands and thousands of examples of how perception shapes reality for us and also the influence that context can have on, on perception. So an example I love is contextually framing information So showing human beings two bits of ground mints that are identical, one of them is framed contextually as 90% fat-free, and the other is framed contextually as 10% fat. People rate the one that's labeled 90% fat-free to be better quality, healthier, and they're willing to pay more for it than the other meat. And of course, that's nonsense because they're identical, right? Mm -hmm. 90% fat-free is exactly the same as 10% fat content. But because the framing of it, the context in which the information is given is different, it fundamentally changes our perception of the object of the meat itself. So perception is a fascinating field because it has to do with things we hear, things we perceive through through all of our senses. Of course, the majority of that is visual. So visual perception is key, so the role of shapes and colors, how information is framed like the example I've just given is absolutely critical in how the brain will decode the information. And making sure that it's decoded in the way that we intended, of course, is critical. And so often there are, in marketing, is littered with case studies of where that perception has has gone wrong. Not because people have done it deliberately wrong, but just unwittingly, they have framed it or they've changed the context. Perceptually, humans perceive it to be something a bit different. So having a look at a deeper level of perception, I think, is also critical. That's the key thing that I've written down, Phil. Perception is reality. Mm. One of the founders of DECO, one of the first things he said to me was, perception beats cognition every time. So like the 90%, 10% meat example, cognition would tell you there's no difference. Well, that doesn't matter. Perception beats it.
0: I love that. That's been my key lesson from today's podcast so far. Perception beats cognition. And speaking about what we can learn from your book. And you in each chapter of your book, what I loved about it is that you summarise not only what we've learned from each chapter, but what this means to us as marketers. And apart from reading your book, where should a marketer start with building and using the understanding about how we make decisions today?
1: Well, I would advocate reading because that's exactly how I got into the area. When I started working with Decode, I asked them for some reading and they said, look, we're not going to send you reams of academic and scientific papers, because frankly, to a layperson, they're impenetrable. <laughs> you know, they are written in a, in a certain way. Having read quite a few since, I'm, I'm pleased they didn't start me on those. So they sent me in the direction of some what are called pop psychology books. So Joan Alera's How We Decide was one. Cialdini's Seven Principles, Persuasion was another. Predictably Irrational was a third. And they're called pop psychology because the layman can read them. And they're fascinating because they do start to talk about the quirks of human behavior and why we do things that seem irrational. They're not actually irrational. They seem they're perfectly plausible and reasonable, but they just feel a bit strange. So they start to unpick a lot of these areas. So I would urge people to start with books like that if you're interested and then delve a bit deeper. That's
0: great advice. And as an ex-client side marketer, I would love to hear your career highs and lows.
1: Ah. <laughs> oh, how long have you got for the lows? I, actually, I think I think one of the most interesting lows, and it's interesting because it's also where I had the career high, was T-Mobile. So I joined T-Mobile, which is a service business, after many, many years in a product business. And not just in a product business, but having worked in Unilever and Diageo, both of whom are very, very much brand-led businesses they just understand that brands are the lifeblood of the company. Brands are revenue, that's it. And Diageo in particular, which has a training program, the Diageo way of brand building, which goes throughout the company. doesn't matter what function you work in, whether it's finance, customer service, or whatever. Everybody goes through the same training, which instills in them the knowledge and importance of brands. And the fact that brands only exist because people buy them. So it's a very much a demand-led culture. So my career low was moving from having spent many years in that type of culture to a business that couldn't have been more different. It was a service for a start. Secondly, it was very much supply-led because the whole mobile phone industry, like technology companies, existed on this sort of inexorable wave of technical development coming on top of Technical development, and yeah, you know, in my first few weeks there, uh, the technical director said to me, "Phil, you need to sell HSDPA," and I said, "Right, what, what's what's HSDPA?" And he said, "High-speed downlink packet access." I said, "Oh, <laughs> snappy! I can, see the, <laughs> I can see the ad now. What on earth does that mean?" And and eventually he explained to me what it meant was faster internet. So oh, okay. I can start to work with faster internet. But you know that was typical because everyone spoke technical jargon. Everyone just developed stuff and chucked it at the market. And marketing's role in the business was to sell. It was communications, really, and promotions. And so I went in. I was actually invited in by a former Unilever colleague who'd gone in as CMO, And we'd worked together successfully in Unilever. And he said, listen, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. The board are willing to listen to a cultural change, which is going to be fundamental from supply to demand led and building a brand. Because right now there are five or six mobile network operators who are all doing the same stuff. And it's a land grab in terms of getting the network coverage in in the UK. But Then it's going to be a land grab when the first person brings out internet access on mobile or 3G moving to 4G, moving to 5G. But everyone's going to have the same stuff. The playing field will very quickly level. So in order to survive in that scenario, we had to build a brand to make it distinctive and start to get the whole business understanding that we didn't just chuck stuff at the market, that we developed stuff that the market wanted. Mm. Yeah, that was moving from a low of thinking, my God, how does this work? How am I going to exist in this culture, which is so alien to how I've been brought up and how I've operated, through to a real euphoric high of the relaunch of the brand throughout Europe and being demand-led and it being brand-led and the whole company getting behind it because they saw the success. That was the key thing. So there you go, career low to high in, uh, in the same business.
0: Love that. And that you made your low your high as well by being humble and taking new perspectives, which has led you to where you are today.
1: Yeah. And I think along the way, one of the things that the academics and the scientists have taught me by working with them is is to always retain a healthy scepticism. And that was behind my comment early on about the 95% of decisions being emotional. When I first heard it, I thought, really? Really? Wow, that 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 sounds very powerful. It's also very precise. I wonder where that comes from. Mm. Whereas other people would just see it presented on typically on a slide with an iceberg showing, you know, the, the vast bit below the waterline. That's emotion, uh, and a nod, and say, "Oh yeah, okay." And it becomes it kind of becomes folklore, and it becomes fact just by the retelling. Whereas if you step back and think about it and ask why and how and what's the source, where does this come from? That can be really useful.
0: And I think also on that point, you know, where I'd heard it from is the thinking fast and slow for the Daniel Kyneman work. But to your point... It's a combination of more than just behavioural science. And that's what I loved about your book. You know, it's neuroscience and behavioural economics and cognitive and social psychology. And when you merge all of that thinking together, you come out with the model that you described earlier than just one school of thinking that, to your point, I've been told, I've listened to, I've then potentially train that on as latest thinking, but actually it's constantly evolving. And when you merge those Mm. levels of thinking together, they take you to a different space. And I think that's the bit to be mindful of is that we are continuing to move and evolve and learn more in this space and to keep abreast of it, which is why I wanted you to come on the podcast. Aha, spooky. Spooky, spooky. So, thank you so much for your time so far on today's podcast. I've got some nuggets here. You know, perception beats cognition. I've written down the human functional jobs and the emotional and psychological jobs to be done and the context in which those are happening. I've learned lots. That's great. So, we
1: always finish with the
0: following question, Phil. What is your one piece of advice that you'd give to marketers of
1: tomorrow? Start to study human psychology is my one piece of advice because, as I said, marketing's about behaviour change. And when I started out in marketing, you could read psychology, but that would take you into psychology and further psychology. But nowadays, there are so many different undergraduate and postgraduate courses available about decision making related to business, not just in the world at large, but related to marketing. And there's lots more literature available. So I would just urge anyone getting into the business of behaviour change to study behaviour change.
0: Love that. And also buy Phil's
1: book, because
0: I really did generally enjoy and love this book.
1: That's very kind. Thank you. Thank you
0: for tuning into The Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a whole marketer and build whole marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.